What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD plus. It's what I use. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that there's a strange and easy way to increase your brain function. And it comes from something as simple as putting your phone far away from you. There's a recent experiment where they had people take exams, and they found that people who kept their phones in a different room performed way better than people who had their phones on the desk in front of them. And it's because the participants weren't distracted because they were getting notifications on their phones. And it turns out that the presence of the smartphone alone was enough to reduce their test performance even if the phone was off. And the reason for that is that your body spends some percentage of your precious mitochondrial energy looking for possible patterns that might be a threat. And if the phone's there, a message could come through that might be dangerous. Now, you know that's not the case, but your body doesn't know that because your body is a pattern-matching machine run by mitochondria. So since it's dumb, change the environment around you so that you have better performance. That's biohacking. And if changing the environment means tossing your phone in the other room when you're taking a test, hey, what if you got an unfair advantage? Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today, before we get going, I want to talk about one of my favorite biohacks, a product that I've had on the Bulletproof site for quite a long time. It's called Bulletproof Coconut Charcoal. This is something that literally changed my life when I was working and turned my brain back on. And I was just dealing with not feeling good a lot. And I would go to a restaurant, I'd eat something, and then I'd just feel like a zombie sometimes. And I'm sure you've probably had that happen at least occasionally. And sometimes you even know you're going to feel like a zombie because you're cheating. And hey, that happens. What you can do with the Bulletproof Coconut Charcoal is you can take it anytime you're feeling bloated, you feel weird, uh, just kind of puffiness, anytime you feel brain fog, or anytime you're going to eat something you ought not to eat. And what it does is it binds to toxins in the gut, which means that your liver won't have to do the work of actually processing those toxins or your kidneys. What happens there 
is that your, your body eats these toxins. They're mostly protein-based toxins. Mold toxins are a very common one, but many other protein-based toxins, like even some lectins, which are plant-based toxins because plants don't want you to eat their babies, um, those things are in there, and they all have a positive charge. The charcoal that we use has a very strong negative charge and a huge surface area. Something around a teaspoon of the charcoal has a surface area that could be as big as, say, an actual football field. So what you're doing there is you have these tiny little things that are super attractive and they suck everything and stick to them. By the way, that includes prescription medications or expensive supplements. So you take the charcoal away from them. I like to take the charcoal a half hour before a meal or with a meal, but not with a supplement. And what happens when you do the bulletproof coconut charcoal is that it sticks to these toxins and then you feel better. If you've already had the toxins, it draws the toxins towards it. And you can like see a difference in muffin top <laughs> relatively quickly, which is kind of funny. On top of that, when my kids get wacky after a meal at a restaurant, I love to give them a little bit of the charcoal and suddenly it's like they return to their normal, relatively sane eight and 10 year old selves. What we do that's different in the Bulletproof Coconut Charcoal is, and this was a, a huge thing to put it on the market, <laughs> was to make sure that we use the finest particle in existence, the finest one we could find anywhere and no other supplement company that I've ever been able to find uses this particle size and there's a reason. The tinier the particle, the more the surface area and the more it works. And there are studies from the US military showing that particle size drives whether or not it sticks to things like aflatoxin, which is a uh, important mold toxin, the one that's most, caught, that's most associated with cancer and other problems in the body. It's the most dangerous of the mold toxins, at least we think it is. So kind of an interesting thing that, that the particle size matters. The reason that's so annoying is that this stuff makes a huge black cloud when we're manufacturing it, so we have to clean the entire facility after we make it for you, but it's totally worth it. So if you haven't tried this stuff, it's very affordable, it's very effective, and it ought to be in your supplement cabinet because when you take Bulletproof Coconut Charcoal, it's just a great detoxing strategy and it works. Before we get into today's, frankly, amazing episode, I'd love it if you took just a second to head on over to iTunes. You might already be there right now while you're still listening and just leave some five-star feedback. I look at the feedback. Everyone else looks at the feedback. And it's one of the ways that you can signal that this show was worth your time. The way I look at Bulletproof Radio is that we've got more than 50 million downloads. That's 50 million hours of human lives. Now, if I'm wasting your time, I'm not providing value. If, if this isn't something that's useful for you, not just entertaining, but hopefully entertaining and useful, I hold myself to a pretty high standard. If you could have used that time for something better and you didn't, that makes me a mass murderer. And if this was the highest and best use of your time, even if it was while you're driving or working or whatever else, then I did a good thing, right? But there isn't a lot in the middle. So I don't wanna waste your time. If this show is worth your time, then I'd love it if you left a review. And if it's not worth your time, then click skip. But I promise you, this is probably the best episode I've ever recorded. It's such a cool conversation. And uh, just, we go into some areas you wouldn't even expect. Today's guest is Shep Gordon. Shep is known as a talent manager and he's the subject of a, a documentary that just came out uh, that was absolutely amazing. And it was called, was it Supermensch or The Mensch? What, what's the exact yeah, name of it? Supermensch, yeah. Supermensch, okay. I was like, Ubermensch, Supermensch, all right. <laughs> Supermensch, you may have seen it. And I had the great pleasure of meeting Shep recently at Jason Gaynard's Mastermind Talks, uh, which is a, a networking group, and was just blown away at 
at your story, Shep. Yeah, you thanks. you told things that I've never seen, and and for for people listening, you've got to see the documentary because it'll blow your mind. If you want to know how, say, Alice Cooper got to be Alice Cooper, it was Shep, and that's why uh, uh, Shep is known uh, in it entertainment industry for just finding talent way before anyone else does, understanding what people find interesting. We're talking Alice Cooper, Groucho Marx, Raquel Welch, Luther Vandross, Kenny Loggins, and like 50 other clients. And, <laughs> and you told you told us on, on stage, Shep, that you have never had a written contract with any of your clients. Is that true? That's, that's true. Yeah. Um, I, I, well, it, I had one with Anne Murray because her lawyer... <laughs> Her lawyer wouldn't let me do it without a contract, so I just put a, oh. I put a clause in at the end that anybody could end it at any time. But it really, you know, for me, it was sort of a roadblock. Um, as a manager, you have to be able to deliver news that the artist doesn't want to hear. Um, anybody can tell them they're great. Um, you also have to um, have the ability to fail which is probably the most important thing um, as a manager, you, you have to be given the ability to, to do. And somehow that contract puts a relation, to, makes the relationship one of winners and losers instead of an equal playing field. Um, and I, I think, you know, all of us have felt that when you have a contractual relationship and something goes wrong, sometimes your brain goes to, instead of fixing it, Oh my God, I can't believe I got myself into this. Um, and, and that was an emotion I didn't have time for. So it really, it was that, and contracts to me mean lawsuits. Um, <laughs> and I don't like lawsuits, but I never would do anything for my artists that wasn't contractually correct. In other words, when, I, when they entered a relationship with a third party, I, I was a stickler on signed contracts. Um, Got it. So yeah. sort of uh, do, do as I say, not as I do. Exactly. Because <laughs> my relationship was different. And okay. it was, you know, uh, if, um, if it ended the next day, I could walk away and I was happy. That wasn't the case usually in most business relationships that you do for an artist um, or for anyone in life. Um, you know, when you have a disagreement, you need something to refer to. In my case, the disagreement referring was just, you know, get another manager. I, I, there's a level of, of trust that, that you clearly establish with these artists when, when they're young and, and maybe not so known, especially earlier in your career. And, and I didn't mention this, but also you helped uh, Wolfgang Puck and Nobu and, and the world of food. Yeah. You probably have as big an influence as the world of art. So I, I know one other guy uh, who, who has the same look in his eye as you. Uh, and it, it's Rick Rubin. Oh yeah, a good friend. Yeah, love Rick. Yeah, I I love Rick. Yeah. And uh, but both of you, when you meet in person, you both have this kind of sparkle and this twinkle in your eye that is incredibly rare. And and you also both have an eye for seeing uh, seeing talent before anyone else and helping the talent manifest itself. And I I want to know, were you born that way, or did you build that? Um. I think born that way because I never, you know, there was no training. I never woke up and said I wanted to be a manager. I never woke up and was excited by life um, or not excited by life. I just, I sort of took the path I took. Um, I think, you know, I, I love Rick very much. And I think 
the thing that we both share is um, a belief sort of in our own ability. Um, and we both sort of do it for ourselves. I, he's very similar to me. You know, if an artist doesn't want to work with him, God bless you. You know, yeah. God bless you. I hope you find exactly what you're looking for. Um, love you. Um, if I can ever help you, great. And move on to the next thing. There's a difference, and maybe I'm reading into this, but this is just something that I'm perceiving. So, I, I, you know, I, self-perception always has its flaws. But <laughs> when you say that, it it actually goes all the way down. It, it's not it's not the same thing that that anyone else could say because because people uh, people will see you. And on this, the show, you may be able to hear it in his voice if you watch this on YouTube. Uh, you may be able to see it when when you look when you look at Shep right now. But uh, there's there's something. That, that's more than integrity. It's just like an awareness thing. And, and I, I've chatted with Rick, not, I haven't interviewed Rick yet, uh, but uh, we've had many occasions to chat. And I, I'm really curious because I want to know how do, how do we teach other people or how do I learn how to have just that level of alignment from when, when you can look at someone and say, no, really, I don't want what's best for you. And, and to not have a little voice in your saying, and what's best for me? Like, <laughs> like, how, how did you get there? Um, you know, I think I always <laughs> sort of had it in me. Okay. Um, I, I got, I'm not a Buddhist, but I got very curious about Buddhism. Um, I got, I went to Chiang Mai on a vacation. My first real holiday when Alice was, um, was successful. It's the first time I could afford a vacation. And, um, in the drawer was a, not a Bible, but a Buddhist, a, a, like a book, I don't know, what, prayer, a prayer book, Buddhist prayer book, I think it was called. And um, TV in those days was mostly in Thai, I didn't have much to do, and I started reading the book. And as a kid growing up, I was raised as a Jew, proud to be a Jew, um, but my attraction to Judaism was culture, not teachings. I, I, I was almost offended by the teachings. Um, Wow. Things like um, the price you paid for your ticket on the high holy days determine how close to the front you sat. And I thought that was really weird. That's like a weird, <laughs> that's weird for a religion to do when they're talking about everyone's equal. You're supposed to. So there, there were little things like that. I tripped over that a rabbi wouldn't marry a Jew and a non-Jew. And I said, boy, mm. that's really weird to me. How can you love everyone? And make that kind of differentiation. I don't, it didn't, it didn't compute. But I wasn't anti-Jewish. I just didn't compute. So I, it, it didn't relate to me. But the culture I love. Um, and uh, what, what were the, what were the things about growing up Jewish and Jewish culture that stood out most for you? Uh, meals were really important. Family, really important. Uh, charitable work, really important. Um, taking care of your brother, really important. Um, a, um, really deep connection to generations before you and the sacrifice that, that they went through to, so that I could be at that table having that meal. Um, just a beautiful sense of, of tribe it was my first real sense of tribe. But the other side of the tribe didn't make sense to me. It just didn't, it was so different. Um, when I read the Buddhist, I, I said, wow, this is the stuff I believe in. Let me investigate this a little more. And I wrote a letter to a friend of mine from college who I knew knew everything in life. And he wrote me back this beautiful 10-page letter about Buddhism, which ended with, 
now the most important thing in Buddhism. Forget everything I told you. Your walks on the beach in the morning, that's the essence of Buddhism. I take the, wow. And I, wow. So it made me really curious. And then I got lucky enough to have an encounter with His Holiness, um, the Dalai Lama, and was even more blessed and helped to orchestrate, uh, helped to create my own blessing. Um, I got to cook for him. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about that. Um, I got taken in um, Los Angeles. I had already was curious about Buddhism. Having read that book, had my friend send me the thing, um, feeling this peace inside of me that didn't, I, I didn't really know where it came from. It, I could see that it, you know, I, I just, I was a little, I was confused. On the left-hand side of me, I was headed for a train wreck. Uh, too successful, too much drugs, too much everything. But I was having a great time. There was no buyer remorse. So, but, I, <laughs> I, but I was really aware of the fact I was headed for a train wreck. And I got taken to a speech by His Holiness in L.A. I was with an actress. And because of that, we got taken backstage. That's the Hollywood thing. And when he walked in the room... I felt like I had taken the greatest shower of my life. I've never felt so clean uh, mentally, spiritually. I don't know if, if I brought that to the night or he created it in the night, but for whatever reason it happened, it just was, oh my God, this is like the cleanest I have ever felt. I got I to gotta figure out how to get near this and figure out what it is. Cause I want to feel like this every minute. I don't want it just to be when a guy walks in a room that's how I want to feel every second, like clean from head to toe. And um, so I, when I got back to Hawaii, I saw her on a bulletin board at Barnes & Noble when we used to have bookstores. <laughs> <laughs> um, that he was coming to the Big Island for a teaching. And in those days, he wasn't the Dalai Lama. You know, a few hundred people would show up, not a hundred thousand. Um, so I sent a note to the person who was the contact for Hollywood saying that I had just started this journey in the culinary world. I had started managing some chefs and I would love to show his holiness, the bounty that makes Hawaii so special and, um, make sure that when he got here, he didn't just get hotel food, but that he really got to touch the people and the farmers and the growers and they accepted it. Wow. Um, which got me so nervous. It was unbelievable. But the way they the way they accepted it was really interesting. They didn't ask me if I cooked. Not, nothing. They wouldn't tell me what he ate. The only thing they said to me was, um, you, you can't have any expectations. If your expectation is that you're going to cook for him and meet him, don't do the cooking. You cannot bring expectations. Which I thought was really interesting. Great. And I have my own kind of self-worth issues. So I was almost happy I wasn't going to meet him because, like, what do I say? What do I do? What do I do? <laughs> um, and, um, and a funny a funny little story that I think really reflects on who he is. Um, I did some research on Tibetan cuisine, which is very limited. But what, yeah. they, what they have is yak, Y-A-K. And it's a cross between, I think, a goat and a, a, a cow. So it's a very skinny... Um, animal that lives high up in the hills, in the in the hill in the mountains, which is where they are. Um, 
but I assumed that he was a vegetarian. I, it was an assumption I shouldn't have made, but I assumed that. Um, but I wanted, for, in my culture, like whenever anybody would come to my house, either here in Hawaii or in L.A., I'd always have some chicken soup. I used my grandmother's recipe. Always my welcoming, you know, here's something to like, you know, warm your heart and bring you to the family. So I said, what is there in Tibetan culture? Yak. So the thing that they use is yak tea. You go to someone's house, you have yak tea. Right. So it's illegal to bring yak butter into the country, but I got someone to smuggle it in. They brought it to my, <laughs> they brought it to my house. It smelled of my, smelled like every dirty sock in America was in my kitchen. Yeah, it, it's not good when it's oh, not fresh. Oh my God, it was. Oh. And uh, but I made yak tea. So anyway, the first morning I go up to, uh, I finish the meal. And His Holiness's emissary comes in and says, please bring him his breakfast. And I'm going to bring him his breakfast? Oh, my God. So they, they, covered, they covered my mouth in a little cloth and, um, so you don't breathe on his food. And um, I can remember walking up the steps. It was probably 30 steps up to where he was staying. And the spoons were rattling in the club. I was shaking so hard. I was so nervous. <laughs> but I had my yak tea. And, uh, you know, I was thinking to myself, oh, God, he's going to love this yak tea. I'm going to be such a hero. I'm going to be the coolest guy in the world. And the door opens, and um, he's brushing his teeth. He's got his robe halfway down, and he's brushing his teeth, and he looks over with this beautiful smile. Oh, breakfast? And uh, Yes, you're holding this. Uh, oh, put it on the table. So I go to put it on the table, and he goes... And I say to my, oh my God, he's gonna, he's smelling the yak tea. He, I'm, what a hero I am! I'm gonna, the coolest guy in the world. He goes, oh yak tea, and I said, oh yes, you're holding this. He said, oh that's why I leave Tibet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I tell the story only because I've now had the privilege of being around him a number of times, and whenever he feels someone uncomfortable whether it's 10,000 people or one person, he makes some joke to show that he's human. And he, mm. he gets rid of that fear in you. We went to, um, we went to Trinidad. And in Trinidad, um, one of the things about Trinidad is everybody wears their original costume. Africans wear their tribal costume for ceremony. South Americans wear their Indian costume. So we get to the airport and He's meeting the elders of Trinidad, and he walks into the room, and it was like God walked in the room. They, they, you could hear a pin drop. Everybody was just in awe that His Holiness was there. And he walks up to the podium, and he looks around, and there's all these beautiful people in beautiful costumes. Oh, so sorry. He must be in the wrong room. This costume party? <laughs> <laughs> and everybody doesn't know exactly what to do, but you can see that, like, and then he looks down at himself in his robes and he says, oh, no, I'm in right room. I have my costume. <laughs> and that was it. And from that point on, he was just a human being talking to him. So, and I see him, he does it every single time. Um, it's really beautiful. Uh, he, he levels the playing field. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you, you have so many fascinating, just fascinating stories and, and, and things you've done that, that seem... 
uh, to say, say to a younger person listening to this right now, it just seems almost unimaginable <laughs> uh, that that you could do this even when you, know, you didn't have you didn't have the level of, of access in Hollywood that you might have had with the Dalai Lama. Uh, tell me about what you did with Alice Cooper in, in the UK when. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. <laughs> so Alice, um, Alice and I have been together 50 years. Um, he says that we met on a lie. Uh, he told me he was a singer. I told him I was a manager. <laughs> uh, but it's been 50 years. And, and part of it was um, trying to figure out how to be successful. How, do you, how, how are we going to get successful? What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? Um, what's been the historical path to success in this field? Just like you would do maybe at Harvard Business School, except we weren't. We were the other side of Harvard Business School. <laughs> I'll say. But the, yeah, but the things that became obvious to us was that um, nobody really liked the band. So we had the ability to get people to hate us really easily, <laughs> which, is a, which is a thing to put on your list. Um, we, um, so then we started to say, okay, what, how does that translate into music? How do we use, that's our biggest strength. Alice played a show. I saw him open for the doors and everybody left the room at 1500 people. There were maybe 20 people left and the doors were coming wow. on after he was, uh, if you read the early reviews, they, uh, Rolling Stone came to a show and said it was something Walt Disney had the good sense to leave in the can. Oh, God. <laughs> People would get angry, like truly angry. Um, and um, the music community, really angry. I mean, we had a time when we, had a, we were on the top of a, of, of a truck, having just had um, Hell's Angels with the Grateful Dead destroy all our equipment and saying they were going to kill us. Bill Graham, wow. Bill Graham threw him off the stage. He said, either you play rock and roll or you act, but you're not doing both on my stage. He cut their set off after 15 minutes and threw him off the stage. Um, so what we were able to do is get people to hate us. So how does that translate into buying lunch, which is all we really cared about at the time. How do we buy lunch? <laughs> um, and what we saw was that hatred of parents was the key to every superstar. Elvis Presley, Ed Sullivan couldn't show his hips on TV because it was so disgusting. Uh, the, the Beatles had long hair. The, the Rolling Stones urinated on their bathroom. And every one of us started to realize, wait a second, I remember my parents told, took the Bob Dylan record and broke it for my stereo. Every one of us had a story about how our parents told us not to do something, which got us to do it even more. And so that became our, man, our mantra was, okay, let's forget about the kids. How do we get parents to hate us? We know how to get hate. Alice Cooper's a pretty good name for a guy. There's not too many parents in the 60s that's going to accept a guy in a dress named Alice Cooper coming to their front door. Eye makeup. Um, let's do any, so, so any, it worked. In America, it really worked. And the songs led into it. And, you know, I'm 18. I don't know if I'm a man, a boy. Or, um, <laughs> so, so we were number one in America, and, and we booked a show in England. And I was—I knew nothing. Um, I still, you know, I—I I, I knew nothing. So I just assumed England's sort of the same as America. You hit 
when we get there, I get there about 10 days early and, and we, we haven't sold a lot of tickets and nobody really cares and nobody really knows. And I get taken into a guy named Derek Taylor's office who was the, called the fifth Beatle. Um, he was their publicist. And in the room was George Harrison who had just come back from India in his white robes and Harry Nielsen and they were all getting really drunk. And I sat there for hours and then everybody left and he turned to me and he said, um, why are you here? And I said, well, we're on your label. And the president of the company said, maybe you could help me and I explained the problem. And he said, tell me about Alice Cooper. And I said, the, the only thing you really have to know is that we want to get parents to hate him. How do we get to the parents? We don't care about the kids. I have 10 days to get the parents over a breakfast table to say to their kids, you're not going to see that Alice Cooper Saturday night, are you? Because if you are, you're grounded. That was that would be winning. That was gigantic. Um, that is so brilliant. <laughs> so, so we talked about what is every English parent, where do they get their information? And Breakfast News, BBC Breakfast News, was the big item. It was sort of like the Ed Sullivan Show had been in America or, you know, one of those shows where the family in the morning watches. And so I said, what do they do on there? He said, well, they do things like, that. you know, grain reports, um, weather, traffic. Um, and he said, traffic's probably the biggest at the rush hour because they have helicopters that go up and they show you how to get to work and do stuff. So I said, so where, where, where's, the, uh, where's the most traffic? And uh, it was Piccadilly Square. It's this roundabout. But, and um, we had just done a photo shoot with Alice naked with a boa, a boa constrictor wrapped around his penis. Um, and it was a very famous photographer, one of, Richard Abaddon, who was probably in those days the number one photographer. So it had some art merit besides being this great shot that we loved because parents hated it. Here's a naked guy with it. So anyway, <laughs> that worked itself into putting that on a 40-foot semi-truck, that poster of Alice with the snake, finding a truck driver who was willing to go to jail for money, and we broke that down twice in the morning during the BBC rush hour. When the helicopter twice at Piccadilly. And the billboard said, you know, Alice Cooper playing Wembley Stadium. <laughs> we had girl, girls in hot pants giving out flyers. The same policeman, they towed us away once. We came back in 15 minutes, broke it down at the exact same place. And they towed it. But we got a 20-mile um, backup. Oh, and, God. And Luckily for us, two members of parliament the next day um, put in legislation to ban us from coming to England. Um, and that hit the front page of the British papers, that they were trying to ban Alice Cooper with the picture of him naked on the billboard. And the show sold, wow. the show sold out in like one minute. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> and it, interestingly enough, this November, he's playing Wembley again, same stadium. I bet you're not going to be blocking any no. traffic this time. no, no. You know, for us, it doesn't sort of work anymore. He's out. He's gone past that moment. But I think, he, of course, but, you know, I, I can remember for me walking past my kid's room the first time I heard rap music. Opening the door, hearing lyrics that to me were offensive. I opened the door. And said, what is this crap you're listening to? And as I said it, I said, oh, shit, this is the next. This is going to be gigantic if I'm telling them. Turn it off. Game set match. 
It was it was probably Run DMC at Rick Rubin was working. Yeah, with. it could have been. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely could have been. <laughs> uh, so you you didn't quite turn into your parents breaking your Bob Dylan record, but you had the urge. Yeah, yeah. That's and a good thing. Yeah, tape, yeah, very tapes much. were harder to break then. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there were no more records. There was nothing to break. <laughs> <laughs> now you, I mean, you when you talk about these stories, you have hundreds of them like this, where it, it just sort of seems to happen around you. And and you've actually talked in your documentary uh, and in your book, uh, which is called "They Call Me Superminch," uh, and you you go through some of these things. But you have this motto, which is "Create history, don't wait for it to happen." Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say when, that. Yeah. Okay. Just, when did that become your motto? <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't know if it was ever conscious, but it, it started early in my life. I I always felt like the first day of my life was when I left home. Don't, for a lot. How old of, were you? I was eighteen. Okay. Uh, and it, my first year of college, but that always felt like like uh, the first year of my life when when my personality started to take over, and I I still don't really plan anything out, but. We were in Buffalo, and um, it, this is a two-pronged story. One part of it is maybe X-rated, but um, I was in Buffalo. We were studying. We in in college, you used to take speed, stay up two days, three days to study. I think they still do that. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, um, <laughs> probably do. These were Black Beauties, uh, Dexedrine. I remember they called Black Beauties, and. Um, Anyway, we, we were getting really silly, and one of the things for a biology test was the sex organ of a fern was the thallus of Marcania. And we started laughing and saying, wow, it sounds like the ruler of a country, thallus <laughs> of Marcania. And one thing led to another, and we sent a telegram from the UN in New York. We had a friend go to the UN to the mayor of Buffalo saying the thallus of Marcania was coming to visit. And they were... <laughs> He had relatives in Buffalo, and they wanted it to be a royal visit. We assumed, you know, nothing's going to ever happen. We wake up, and it's on the Buffalo Evening News that the mayor's going to meet him at the airport. The whole top floor of the Statler Hilton is, is – so, so now we have to – we decide we got to do this with a guy named Art, Arthur Canner, who I think has passed away now, um, went to New York on a Mohawk airline, I remember, or Allegheny airline with a couple of sheets and pillowcases. And he comes back <laughs> off the plane wearing the sheets and pillowcases. The mayor's there, but unbeknownst to him, the night before we stayed up again and we couldn't let it sit. So we called B'nai Breath and we told him, how could you let the Thallus of Marcania come? He's the most anti-Semitic ruler in America. <laughs> so now a thousand people came out and picketed at the airport, Buffalo airport. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, that and that it, it, actually, I gave a talk at a Jewish center for my book um, last year. Four of the people had been holding placards at Buffalo Airport, lived in Buffalo as kids, and actually came out from the Jewish center, never knowing it was a hoax. <laughs> oh, but anyway, and you just did this for, for just pure amusement. Just for right? amusement. But then, then two years later, I went to Mexico. And I took my first um, psychedelic, which was... Um, Pe peyote? Or? Peyote, yeah. yeah. Pure peyote. And in Mexico, I had read that they sold, they used it for rheumatism, that they put it in alcohol for a couple of months and then rubbed that. Uh -huh. So I went to an herb store and I picked up, I remember, a burlap bag, 
of peyote and took it down to Acapulco. I never chewed it because it tasted horrible, but I would cut little pieces and take it with water. But my first trip, um, there was a fire on the beach and the fire went out. And I said to myself, I can make that fire come back because I can do anything. I'm part of this. I'm just one other piece. So uh, if, you know, and it came back. Whether it did or it didn't, I don't know. But I remember leaving, wow. leaving Mexico saying, you know, I can do anything. It's really... Is that, so, is that still with you today? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, but, but what I tried to do then was use it for my business in a practical way. So how that became practical to me was instead of thinking about how am I going to sell Alice tickets, I thought about how am I going to get a, what can I do? What do I want? I want a parent to open up a newspaper at the breakfast table or see a TV thing that's going to get them to talk about Alice. Okay, how do I get that on TV? What's going to get on that TV? Uh, they, do, they do traffic reports. Let me fuck up the traffic. And then I get on TV. So it was all, it, I always used to tell my clients, my job is to get ahead of year and figure out where you go on the highway, you know. And let me, you know, with Teddy Pendergrass, I was trying to tell the world he was Black Elvis. How do you tell the world someone is Black Elvis without being arrogant? So I got ahead and I said, well, if he was really Elvis Presley, what would be like the most amazing thing? If he gave a concert and only women bought tickets, the men were completely shut out and screaming and yelling when his hips go. So I went to Teddy and said, let's do a concert for women only. Let's get a, let's get a, let's be able to tell the story that you did a concert and 5,000 women showed up for your concert. We can't say you're black Elvis, but we can let the journalists, when they look at the audience, I can feed them the line, black Elvis. Uh, and we made it fun. We did a chocolate teddy bear lollipop that they, <laughs> because they kept thinking, here's these women, they just want to grab them and rape them. Well, how do I, how do I manifest that for them? Oh, God, that's, you know. <laughs> That's what it was. Um, so it's all those little nuances. And then I started to think about the ad. I thought about someone opening up the newspaper, seeing for women only how arrogant that could sound. Um, I don't want him that. I don't want him to see that. What do I want him to see? I want him to like hug him and hold him. How do I do that? So we ended up doing the ad was a full page picture of a stuffed teddy bear with a little note on its collar that said. Come spend the night with me. Love, Teddy. <laughs> so it was really soft, sweet, wasn't threatening. Um, it wasn't this macho guy saying, you know. Um, but anyway, so that's, I, I think that's a long answer for a short question, but <laughs> that's sort of my method. How often did you use hallucinogens when you were using drugs a lot? I was an abuser. An yeah. abuser of hallucinogens yeah. or just yeah. of drugs in yeah. general? Um, I would say hallucinogens was, I, when I say an abuser, I don't mean because I did a lot, but I say it because I wasn't getting the enjoyment out of it and continued doing it. So mm -hmm. I, I took a trip every day for a couple of years. And um, I would say the second year, there was no difference between taking it or not taking it. It didn't, it didn't, didn't get me high. In a lot of shamanic very traditional practices, they take it every day until it, it doesn't have an effect because then they're, they, they say that they're walking with one foot 
in a spirit world and one foot mm. in the real world all the time. Mm. And or maybe you accidentally did that. Yeah. Do you think yeah. that's possible? I think it's possible. Yeah. No, I, I know that, um, that I, I, don't, I don't want to say this in an arrogant way, but the things that I enjoyed, what, what I really enjoyed about psychedelics is it was able for me to see the world in a different way. Um, whether it's a true way or not a true way is beyond me to judge. But I was able to see the world in a way that compassion made sense, that the things that I sort of believed in made sense. So maybe it was self-serving, not self-serving, I don't know, but, I, but it worked for me. I got to a place where, where I felt um, good about myself and good about my actions and my motivations. And then it, and that sort of stayed with me. Um, I, 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 I'm almost scared now. I've been offered many times now to do psychedelics. And I tend to steer away. I almost have a fear that I've hit a, hit a balance for me in my life that I'm really comfortable with. And I don't know if right or wrong or truth or not truth. I don't know how you get to those big things. Um, but I sort of like who I am now and, and don't want to mess with it. Uh, I, I can respect that very much. Yeah. I was at a dinner in New York literally a couple days ago. And I was there to, to speak at the, the Tony Robbins event. And a friend said, I'll put together a dinner. And I didn't know it was going to be a dinner with this really interesting but very powerful, influential people. And I, I just asked a question of about 25 people, you know, how many of you have used hallucinogens at least once? Because we were talking about in the context of therapy. Right. And you know what? Almost every single hand went up. And like, like these are people you wouldn't necessarily expect would have, yeah, have, no, no. have used it. Probably none of them were abusers. And some of them had done, you know, 25 ayahuasca ceremonies. And a lot of them had just been a couple times, but... It, it, and for me, it was the same sort of thing I did at Ayahuasca with a shaman in Peru uh, about 20 years ago, uh, before it was cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> but the, just the ability to see the world from a different angle, okay. I think, influenced me as well, and in a positive way. Mm -hmm. But the, there are people, and I I'm sure you saw them, you know, who, who didn't do well yeah. when they'd used a lot of any kind of drug, yeah. including the psychedelics. I've had some friends who moved to a ledge that they probably wouldn't like to be on. Yeah, but, yeah. but and I, I think they're experiencing a renaissance right now, and I, I hope it's for the good. But uh, do you uh, do, do you think that's a, a good thing for the world? Or, yeah, I don't. Or you know, I don't really. I don't feel qualified to make a decision. I think that um, I don't know enough about this micro thing that I've heard about a Jason thing really for the first time, and, ah, I, and I've yeah. now seen more and more places. Um, I'm curious about ayahuasca. Um, I had yesterday an amazing guy at the house, Chef Alex Italia. He's got the number nine restaurant in the world in San Paulo. Um, wow. Who offered to take me in. He, he, he forages his stuff in the Amazon. If you get a chance, he's on wow. Chef's Table. And it's a, okay. it's a remarkable piece. He attributes everything in his life to his first acid trip. Um, made him see the circle of life, which made him mm -hmm. want to cook and want to do the things that he does. Uh, really beautiful thing. So he offered, I'm going to be there in September, and he offered to take wow. me into the jungle to, to his shaman. And I, I was, that was my meditation this morning in the jacuzzi. Am I? Do I want to mess with who I've become? And do I even want to see <laughs> if I'm not right in my comfortableness? <laughs> I'm, so, I'm 71. I'm sort of happy. <laughs> 
Well, your, your nervous system knows the right answer, and uh, you seem like the kind of guy who's plugged in intuitively to know what the right thing yeah, to do yeah, is. Yeah, so I'm meditating you, on it. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe uh, I, I'm going to spend some, spending some time in Hawaii, uh, and I, I know we're planning to hook up. So oh, it would be great. Yeah. Maybe confidentially you can uh, you can share the story with me. If mm-hmm. you feel so, so motivated, I'm certainly curious. Uh, let's go back to what it was like when you were going. Because there are a lot of people listening who really weren't around in the 70s. I was born in 72, so I was around, mm-hmm. but I don't have much solid memory of the 70s other than a few bell bottoms here and there. What uh, What's the difference between Hollywood in the 70s and Hollywood of today? Well, I think um, the two biggest differences, probably, AIDS, consciousness mm-hmm. of AIDS, changed the social pattern of Hollywood completely. Um, and, and I would say the second thing is in the 60s, there was no real awareness of consequences. And in the early 70s, starting in the late 70s, we started to realize consequences. Everyone around us was dying. You know, Janice, Jimmy, uh, Morrison. Um, people, would, we didn't think about consequences. You just got as fucked up as you could possibly get every night. And then you woke up. Um, so there were no consequences in your sexual approach to life. And there were no real consequences in your drug approach to life that we knew or thought about. So it was a whole different uh, landscape because sex and drugs are what Hollywood thrives on for the most part. Um, it seems like it still does to some yeah, extent. it does, but with consequences and with, okay. and with age. So it's very, very different. It's just now, more now, caution, now it's more now, now the age thing is sort of over, but there was a moment in the late, in the early eighties, probably it wasn't into the nineties where that was everything that took over everything. I was a night, I was a nightclub owner. So the, the difference in the interactions in the nightclubs were just amazing. You would, someone would go from being admired for having a conquest of many beautiful women or men to being almost hated for it. Like promiscuity wow. would promiscuity went from a gold medal on your chest to a uh, mark of someone who didn't give a shit. Wow, I, I came of age right at right at that time where it was all about AIDS in high school and all. So I, I remember regretting just going, man, if if I'd have been uh, you know ten years uh, born ten years earlier, uh, wow, <laughs> I'd be able to get a date. Oh my god, it was so wild. Yeah, it was so wild. <laughs> I mean, so, so that's free, the big, free love the, really was free love. Yeah. Wow, I, yeah. I, I can't imagine having not lived it. Yeah. Now you've okay. One more of your stories. Why did Janice Joplin punch her in the face? <laughs> um, so I I, I, um, I moved to California as a probation <laughs> officer. I got a job in Los Padrinos Juvenile Hall, and I was a uh, uh, Anthony Bourdain puts it in a very Nice way he said it was a pharmaceutical salesman. Uh, <laughs> and um, so uh, I was, I had hair almost down to my waist. Um, I was high on acid every day. Um, and I'd show up at Los Padrinos Juvenile Hall during the Reagan era as a probation officer, thinking that I'm going to save these kids. I sort of have an image of myself on a white horse galloping mm-hmm. into the prison. Here I am, guys. You're going to be okay now. And um, the system was much bigger than me. 
<laughs> and my innocence was definitely much bigger than uh, than reality, and um, it wasn't a good experience. So I I let I resigned that night. It was about an hour, as I remember, it was about an hour from L.A. Um, I drove into L.A. I had maybe six hundred dollars and a couple of thousand bits of acid, um, <laughs> which took you know like a pinhead. It was nothing, um, and. Um, like I remember the drive. It was, I went down. I got off the freeway, went down Highland Boulevard, got trapped in the right-hand lane, so I had to make a right down Franklin Avenue. <clears throat> and there was a motel sign said vacancy, right next to the Magic Castle. So I pulled into the driveway, and I think it was eighteen dollars a night, which meant I, you know, I could stay a couple of weeks and figure out what I was going to do. And um, checked into room two twenty-four up in the corner and um, took some acid, which is what I did. And thinking about how fucked my life is that I just couldn't even make a probation department job work. What am I going to do with my life? And um, heard a girl screaming down it. It was, it was one of those hotel, California hotels, two stories open at one end around a swimming pool. So I could see sort of these shadows by the pool. And I heard a girl scream. And I've just come from a jail, and I'm pretty high, and I'm on my and I'm on my white horse, you know. <laughs> so I take the horse down and <laughs> separate the two people, thinking I'm saving the girl, and they were making love, and <laughs> <laughs> and she punched. You were really high. Yeah, I was really okay. high, and she punched me, and um, when I went down to the pool in the morning, the girl was Janis Joplin. And she was, she was, she hadn't, I don't believe she was with Jimi Hendrix the night before, but that morning she was sitting with Jimi Hendrix. And I didn't see the guy, um, so I have no idea. I didn't see her either, it was dark. Um, and, wow. and it turned out to be this rock and roll um, lunatic bin. It was the Chambers Brothers, um, Paul Rothschild, who produced The Doors, Jim Morrison was always there. The, the, one of the gang leaders was Arthur Lee from a group called Love. He was sort of the, the one they all looked to musically. Um, and um, Jimmy Hent, I mean, they were all there. And my first thought, <laughs> my first thought was embarrassment. And then I went, holy shit, this is the best customer base in the world. I have walked into, <laughs> so I became the salesman with my goods. This was like the greatest if you're an acid salesman, the guy you want to see is Jimi Hendrix in front of you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that started my journey. And um, it was about two or three months into it when, uh, in a very concerned moment, um, Jimmy and the Chambers brothers sat me down and um, said, do you have a real job? And I said, no. He said, yeah, no, we see you at the hotel all the time. Um, what are you going to do if the police come and ask you, where'd you get the money for rent? You can tell them you sell acid. And I said, no, they said, you need a front. You need, you need to have some, something you can say. Um, because you know, where I came from, the police didn't ask anything, but where they came from, if you had a new watch, you better be able to tell the cop on the viewer. So, um, Jimmy said to me, are you Jewish? And I said, yeah, I said, you should be a manager. <laughs> and, uh, Alice was living in Lester Chambers' basement. So we, uh, they went over to see Alice, and Alice tells the story that 
that Lester came in and said, we found a Jew that'll manage it. And that's the only way to make it in Hollywood. And uh, <laughs> they all came over to the hotel and we shook hands and it's been 49 years, 50 years later. And you've been a manager ever since. Yeah. <laughs> wow, and you just happened to end up at that hotel yeah, the, through some sort yeah. of alignment of whatever. That, that is, a, it's an amazing story. Yeah. I think for most uh, of us, you know, I, I think most of us in our lives, um, chant, grabbing chance is a big part of the success, you know? Yeah. I think we all, we all get to go on that very ground is grabbing the ring. But, uh, yeah, there's times in my life where I can see something big and, and it hurts to not grab it. Yeah. <laughs> so then I, I feel like, like almost a little bit of pain if I don't go do it. And it tends to be something that disrupts a big industry that needed it. Uh-huh. Uh, so maybe you felt some sort of pull or maybe you didn't. Yeah, no, no, I never really, I've never, my work is completely disassociated from my life. Wow. Not, 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 the, not the culinary side. Mm-hmm. The culinary side is my passion and, and very connected to my life. But the music and the film side, all that stuff that I did, had, I think it's part of what made me effective was that I was not emotionally attached to it at all. I don't listen. It's funny you say Rick Rubin because he came here about maybe a year and a half ago. We, we knew each other when he first started Def Jam. I canceled Russell and Lior. So I got, mm-hmm. I got to meet him and um, they, Russell would come to the house a lot and you know, I, would, I would sort of mentor them a little bit. Lior is an Israeli kid who stayed at my house with his parents. And, but I never really got to know Rick and when the documentary came out, Rick uh, emailed me and said, I'd really like to spend some time with him. Um, when are you going to be in Hawaii? And he has a place in Kauai. So, yeah. so he came over. We had a beautiful time. I got to meet his wife, who's just sensational. Um, yes. Really, uh, and really got a deep appreciation for him. And at the end of it, he said to me, I'd like you to play this new thing I've been working on. And I said, I'd love to hear it, but we'll have to go in my car because I don't have any stereo at the house. Oh, no. And he, he <laughs> said, you're kidding. I said, no, I don't. I probably haven't had one in 25 years. And uh, he went out and bought me Sonos. Through all of my houses, <laughs> my guest house, my office. <laughs> uh, he, he, his place is all wired up with Sonos yeah, too, yeah. and I've got Sonos here as well. Yeah. It, it's a cool. I thing. love Sonos, but that, yeah. I love it. it. That sounds that sounds a lot like Rick, a gener- generous guy, and and so deeply connected to music and how it moves people. And it's funny that you've worked in music for so long, but I guess in twenty five years you've been more on culinary and and also philanthropy. And and I know we've got about ten minutes left. Uh, before you've got to run to the airport. So let, let's spend about five minutes talking about why you went into philanthropy. Like what, what motivates you to do it? Yeah, what, I, I, you know, I, what's important? I'm, I'm, as a Jew, first of all, um, it's really an important part of our culture. As, as much as maybe the image of, of toughness, um, it's, it's always to me, I, um, I felt that tug very strongly having, Having our people persecuted the way they were always, mm-hmm. always made me feel that uh, philanthropy is an important part of my life. And I feel so lucky to be here, the sacrifice people gave. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't say I ever sat down and said, you know, I'm going to be philanthropic. It's just opportunities came up. My first, I, th- I think now I'm probably more focused than I've ever been. And it's, um, 
on hunger. I feel, mm-hmm. I feel in some way that, that I've helped to empower a generation of, of uh, artists to really uh, get economic reward, get, get, um, get the kind of respect they deserve. I think I helped to make the culinary arts a real art, <coughs> excuse me, a real art form. And I gave the, call, the, the graduation speech at the CIA last year. I said, you know, we all sacrificed a lot so you guys could be stars um, and make the money you're making. And we didn't do it just to cook dinners for people who can afford $100 meals. That's not what this is about. That's a beautiful part of life. But when you walk out of your restaurant, it got two Michelin stars because you were able to walk over the backs of all of us and we were happy to let you walk. To the left are starving people and to the right are starving people and they're your neighbors. And our obligation is to make sure there's nobody starving. That's, that's the job, not to make $100 dinners. That's a nice perk. So I've tried to, I've spent the last few years of my life and spending more and more trying to instill that thought into the people who are feeding people, that it's not just about feeding rich people. And I think it's the first time in my life that I have a, a credible platform to speak from. They, they, I think they listen to me. In, in, in the culinary world, I think I, I, I'm able to maybe affect them. So I want to use that little bit of power that I may have to try and uh, stop it. Here, here on Maui, we, we fed 1.2 million meals through a New Year's benefit, um, wow. which basically eliminates hunger on the island. So we're, we're a great microcosm of some artists donating one half hour of their lives. You know, and it's great artists. It's Steve Tyler, Alice Cooper. Wow. They've all done it for 10 years now. And they donate. We have a great time New Year's Eve. And we actually feed an island. Um, and that's a model that is so easy to, to transpose in every city. Um, it's just a matter of focus. So I would say that's, I don't think of myself as a philanthropist, but I, I feel like I owe it to the planet who have given us all so much. You know, it's just crazy that people are hungry. And if you're hungry, as I told all my chefs when I talked to them, I said, the most selfish thing you can do in the world is stop hunger. Because those hungry people, they're going to rob your house they're going to hurt yes. you. They're going to hurt your kids. They're going to steal your car. So even if you don't want to help them, do it to be completely selfish for the betterment of you and your family. So it works. It's a win-win on every level. So that's sort of, in my waning years, I hope I can have some effect. It sounds like you already have. <laughs> well, I have a final question for you, and I'm really curious how you're going to answer it. And it's, it's given you've, you've led this amazing life across multiple disciplines and you've, you've learned so much and experienced more than the average person probably ever will. If someone came to you, say, as a young person and said, look, I want to kick more ass at life. I, I, I want to be a better human being. I want to be better at everything I do. What are the three most important things I need to know? What would you share with them? Well, that's a tough question. Um, I would say find a way to hear yourself. Um, Joseph Campbell, I think, talked about it as well as anyone I've... I, I sort of picked up a lot from Joseph Campbell when he talked about 
find a quiet space, mm. go into a quiet space for 20 minutes. It may be boring for a while, but eventually you'll hear yourself. Um, so I think that's finding some way to hear yourself. Um, finding some simple technique to keep you thankful. For me, it's really saying thank you. There, there are mornings I wake up when I just feel fucked. But the first thing I do is I, I get out on the beach and I thank you. I put my hands together. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And it, I sort of move from fuck to thank you. And it's a really simple, tiny, it's so obvious, to me it's so obvious, but it works for me. So I would say, you know, hear yourself, be thankful, and try and have good thoughts. Um, and I think if you have those three things together, and you can't control your thoughts, you know, so every time you catch yourself, jealousy, greed, anger, just catch the thought and and figure out some way for yourself to move it to somewhere else. I always say, don't get mad. Use that anger to accomplish what you want to accomplish, what you're angry about. Um, so, but I, I also, the fourth one is don't listen to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> There's that Buddhist thing coming up again. <laughs> well said. <laughs> It's a real honor to have you on Bulletproof Radio and to be able to share your stories and, and your wisdom. And thanks for taking the time to do this. Well, thank today. you for having me. I'm a fan, so thank you. Oh, it's a great honor. And I know you've got to go to the airport, yep. so I'm going to let you go maybe Aloha. two minutes early so you can make it. Great. Don't rush. Have a safe trip. And thanks again. Thank you. Aloha. A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.